What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he yet not also, with him graciously, give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of the Father, who is indeed, who indeed is interceding for us, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Verse 37. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. All right. Last week, we, um, we ended off with some soteriology. We were looking at uh, the, the doctrines of salvation. Um, God has predestined us, has called us, justified us, sanctified us, and glorify us. Uh, each step of the Christian life is in the hands of the Lord. Uh, we also look at the future promise, the inheritance of the kingdom of heaven. The Spirit is our seal of authenticity and is the one who helps us in our weakness. Um, the inclusion of some uh, of just the predestination talk uh, might have seemed a bit uh, out of place in, in the previous verses. Uh, we were just uh, like it goes from talking about suffering and the Holy Spirit sanctifying us. Why are we now coming back to justification and before the foundations of the earth? It's, it's a very far jump back um, that is happening. But uh, verses 28 and 30 that we looked at last week um, are key in establishing the principle that we're going to look at here in verse, um, verse 31. So, uh, yeah, let, let's, let's get into these verses. Uh, verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? So what are these, what are the things in question? Um, one could take an immediate look at the text and just say, uh, well, it's Romans 8, 28 and 30 or through 30. However, uh, I think this, the things in question applies uh, to more than that. I think it is a, uh, all the context that Paul has set up from Romans 1, 16 through Romans 8, 30. Uh, so what shall we say of all of Romans so far? So let, let's, let's take a quick look. Um, we have been shown that we are desperately sinful, and we all have fallen short of the glory of God. But wondrous news, God has sent his only son to justify us and make us right before God. Um, and this is established through grace, so that we have peace with God. Um, even furthermore, 
uh, in your Christian life, you will still struggle with sin. And that, that is something that doesn't go away. But we are given the Holy Spirit who helps us in our weakness. And even furthermore than all of that, all of this was planned from before the foundations of the earth. You were not simply foreknown to have chosen God, but you were called by God. You were predestined to conform to the image of his Son. Uh, God is the one who is justifying us, sanctifying us, and glorifying us. Uh, so what, what do all these things say? What does the context of us being desperately sinful and then being redeemed, and this redemption is in the hands of God? Well, it says that God is for us. God is actively justifying his people and adopting them into his glorious family. The, if anything, the whole context of Romans is showing us going from uh, being desperately wicked and going against God to Christ justifying us, even when we do not turn to him, but we are in violent rebellion against him, that is uh, showing that God is for us. God is. Uh, extending past our current sinful nature, despite us being sinful, God is the one who is justifying us, who is redeeming us. He is the one who is for us, which, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, then who can be against us? Now, it is important to note um, the if in this verse. Um, how do we know that God is for us? Well, the indicator by Scripture is a you have been justified by Christ. Um, to know what that properly means, you do have to root yourself in the scriptures. Many cults will attempt to claim that God is for them, but the ignorant claims of man do not dictate reality. Uh, that is why we root ourselves in the word of God. Many will try to distort the message of salvation, but in so doing, they're going against the word of God. They're twisting his word. They're corrupting his word. If they're not even lining up with the word of God, then how are they going to say that God is for them? But that, that's just an important, uh, I guess, little, little thing to point out is that if um, people can wrongly attempt to attribute God being for them, and it is only our measure against that is by using uh, scripture. Now, if God is for us, then who can be against us. Um, Paul is not saying, or is not trying to insinuate that we will not face hardships uh, in the Christian life. There will be people who violently oppose us, um, but the opinions of foolish man will, will never outweigh the eternal commitment of the Lord. Uh, the opposition of man to God is temporal. It, it will wash away. God's justification of his children is not simply a temporal act, but it is uh, eternal life and joy in the kingdom of heaven. It is uh, far greater than any type of mismatched philosophical takedown that someone can try to have of, of Christianity. But it is uh, the Lord's promises. The Lord is the one who keeps his promises. Um, verse 32. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So God did not spare his only son, but he gave him up. Christ received the full wrath of the Father on the cross. 
God's infinite love is shown clearly to us in this sacrifice. In this brutal sacrifice, we see the precious love of God. Christ received the punishment that was meant for us. Um, if the Father has already given us the ultimate gift, which is justification through his only Son, then why would he not graciously give us smaller things? Now, this verse shouldn't be used to say that God should now give us all money, drugs, and sports cars. No, that's uh, God is a good Father, and he knows what we need. He gives us what we need to reflect Christ more and more. A bad father would give his child a snake when he asks for a puppy. But our perfect father gives us what we need and not what our sinful heart desires to only reach the eventual end of sin. God has already given us the perfect gift of justification through his son, and his grace will continue to flow in all things. Verse 33. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is the one who says God's elect is not saved? God is the one who justifies, not man. Now, this verse does require a bit of clarification. Uh, this verse should not be used to say or to tell your Christian brothers and si well, stumbling over my words. This you this verse should not be used to counter a Christian brother or sister telling you that you are in sin. It should not be used in that way. If you are attempting to twist scripture to justify your own sinful actions, then one, it's even more sinful, but two, that, that, that is not how this verse should rightly be applied. This is uh, talking very particularly about um, justification. Um, but, yeah, this verse should also not be used to say that the church's ability to disfellowship a member after the proper means is not something that can rightly do. Because, uh, you know, people will attempt to uh, shy or use this verse to say, no, I can't be judged, you can't tell me I'm sinful, and then two... No, the church can't tell me what I'm doing is sinful, and the church can't disfellowship me. But that's, uh, obviously, that's not the proper application of this verse. But you will see people who will try to flee to one of these verses to, uh, to say that they are not in sin and that you cannot tell them that they are in sin. So now, um... This verse is saying that God is the one who justifies man. We are made new in him. And uh, it is not by man's doing that we are made new. I see some of y'all are confused about disfellowship. I can... Actually, I'll just give a quick, uh, a quick little note on it here. Disfellowshipping is a process in which you have uh, someone, someone who is a member of the church. They're in blatant sinful action. You have one person go to them and confront them on their sinful action. And if they do not repent, then you come back with three. If they do not repent, you bring them before the church. And if they do not repent before the entire church, then you have to disfellowship them. You essentially say, you are not a member of this church and we do not recognize you as a Christian. Because they're making very clear that their commitment is to sin and not to God. Um, 
now it is a multi-step process but that is what disfellowship is it's essentially a church's means of uh, saying um yeah of saying if someone who is in blatant rebellion is not a christian it's like if someone were to come to the church and be like is that guy a christian the church would be like no he, he's he's disfellowshipped but before that then you don't really have um the church shouldn't necessarily be going and saying he's saved there's not saved there's saved and making uh broad assumptions about people that's not what the church's responsibility is but that's disfellowshipping um goose i, I will get to your your question after um but yeah this verse is uh, um oh man lost my train of thought we are made new in god and not in man it is christ who is the one who is um justifying us making us new um and god is the ultimate judge we have been declared innocent before him through the atonement that is provided in christ so who can argue with the final judge who can argue with the supreme authority if god says that this is one of my elect this person is saved who can argue against that no, no one can uh, god is the ultimate authority on it verse 34 um who is to condemn christ jesus is the one who died more than that who was raised who is at the right hand of god who is indeed interceding for us what man can condemn us it, it is christ who died he died for us he received our punishment and furthermore he raised from the dead he defeated death and sin and he now sits at the right hand of the father uh, he sits in a position of honor of executive authority um, christ is at the right hand of the father interceding for us in heaven while as we saw earlier in romans the holy spirit is interceding in our hearts uh, christ is the one who has already taken the condemnation who is to condemn us Christ has already taken the condemnation from the Father, the condemnation that was meant for us. Who can condemn us when we have Christ to point to, say, he took on our condemnation. We are now holy and blameless before the Lord. <clears throat> verse, um, verse 35 and 36. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness, or danger, or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? The same love that comes down, lives a perfect life, and dies a painful death on the cross while receiving the full wrath of the Father. This, uh, this perfect love is a perfect love that was known before the foundations of the earth and was put into action at perfect time who can separate us from that love can man separate us from um from the love from that type of love with force can nature separate us from that love by not yielding crops can man use a weapon to separate us from this love um, Paul here quotes in, in verse 36 uh, is a quote from Psalm 44, 22. And 
Paul is showing that this isn't just a hypothetical. Um, God's people have been slaughtered like sheep in the past. Uh, this still didn't separate them from the love of Christ. They, they still stood in the love of Christ, which can't be separated by the sword. Uh, the perfect love of Christ stands tall through everything. Even if you go and read Psalm 44, you'll see a lot of um, slaughtering, and you'll see uh, bad conditions that would make one want to uh, reject God. And uh, the psalmist does have um, an outcry of, of anger, but in the beginning, the end, um, he shows that his commitment is still in the Lord. He's not going to give away to false idols. Um, the Lord is his uh, arrow, his bow, his shield. He has faith in the Lord over all of their military might. The love of Christ stands tall. Um, verse 37. No, in all things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So, Paul is answering the question that we just saw in verse 35. Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword um, separate us from the love of God? And, and the answer is no. And uh, even furthermore, uh, it doesn't separate us, but we are conquerors in all of these things. We are conquerors in these situations through Christ. 1 Corinthians uh, 15, 54 through 57. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where's your victory? O death, where's your sting? The sting of death is sin, the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Our conquering is not necessarily seen through us picking up the sword and killing all those who seek to oppose us for our salvation in Christ. Our conquering comes through Christ and his victory over sin and death. We have complete victory in Christ. Even if we suffer physical pain, death, Christ is our victory because Christ has already conquered. Christ has already died on the cross and rose again. He sits at the right hand of the Father. He sits exalted on high. There is a, nothing physical that can conquer that victory. In Christ, we, um, we have victory. We are conquerors through him. Verse, uh, verse 38 and 39. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God, Christ Jesus our Lord. There is nothing that can separate us from Christ. Christ has already defeated death. Um, Hebrews 1.4 shows us that Christ is superior to angels. Christ is above all rulers on the earth. In fact, the rulers are installed by the Lord. There is nothing in or in current time or time to come that can usurp the Lord. 
the love of Christ has uh, um, has shown to already have been predestined and will continue to be shown that that love has already been preserved throughout history. It will be continued to be preserved throughout history. And uh, there is no power that can overcome it. Not the highest mountain or the lowest valley is sufficient to hide away from God. Even more, nothing in creation can separate us from the love of God. There is nothing in this perceivable reality that can separate us from the love of God. There is not a single bit of creation that even has the possibility of doing so. There is no possible situation or person or event or ruler or power that can separate us from the love of God. God is the one who made creation. Can that which he made hope to become more than him? Can the clay become the potter? Everything in creation is under his authority. There is no name higher, no power higher. God is at the top. When God makes covenants, he promises by his own name, because there is nothing more than that that can guarantee a promise. There is no name higher to swear by. The authority of the Lord cannot be broken, cannot be usurped, and his perfect love cannot be broken. His perfect love is much stronger than anything. There is nothing in creation that can usurp his authority or his love. Our God is the highest, and this should give us so much comfort. God is for us. God justifies us, sanctifies us, glorifies us. And there is nothing that can separate us from that love. No one can oppose us, and no one can hope to break the perfect love of Christ. Praise the Lord for his salvation of hopelessly broken man, and his perfect unending love, which can never be broken. The Lord is on high, and his love is also on high. There is nothing that can stand in between it. Um, yeah. That's um, that's all I got for uh for these verses. I saw um, Goose had a couple of questions that I can get to, but um, is there any uh, questions or comments or anything like that that you want to either put in the uh, Bible study chat or you can use your voice if you want to? Um, let's see if I can scroll up to Goose's. First question. Yeah. Well, uh, um, while I'm looking for this, if anyone has a question they want to ask by voice chat, they can they can do that as well. Did you delete your your earlier question, Goose? Can I just not find? This was the initial. So basically, he made sin a thing to prove our worthy. No. The sin... Well... If you're going by the, uh, by the law, then no. If, if you're going by salvation um, in the law, then the, that, is, that is the purpose of sin. 
in a sense, or that is a condemnation that happens with sin. But we are justified in Christ. We are made new in him. And because of this, because of us being justified and being given hearts, we are now, um, we now do not seek sin. It is our desires are now changed because we are given new hearts. We are given new identities in Christ. So it's not to prove our worthiness, but if you are in unrepentant sin, and sin is rebellion against God, then what, what does that necessarily say about where your desires lie? Um, it, is not, um, it is not a metric which we are judged by, because we already have uh, salvation in Christ, and you know if you if you do sin and we, you uh, you weren't here for for Romans seven um, where we looked at the the struggle between the the sinner and the saint or the sin and the saint. Um, it's a um, it's a struggle that's going to happen, but but the the key thing when talking about with disfellowshipping because I, I think that was the main context that was um that that was about is uh, it is unrepentance and it is uh, three confrontations three lines of uh, witness testimony essentially which is the biblical standard um of unrepentance and of you saying yes this is a sin and i know that it's a sin but i am not going to stop, even after being brought before the whole church. But you, you will stumble in your life. You will stumble with sin. But the, what marks the difference is uh, um, living with repentance. And, uh, um, yeah, living with repentance and, and attempting to flee from sin. Because we're not perfect. We, we are always going to stumble. Paul, and he wrote, a majority of the New Testament, and he's talking about his struggles with sin in Romans 7. So it's not a metric which we are, um, which we use to say, oh, I'm, I'm a better Christian or something like that. It's, um, it's just for that particular thing of disfellowshipping, that is the metric which we are saying you are living in complete unrepentant sin, and there is, um, you're making it clear with your actions that you are essentially saying, I... I deny God, pretty much. Um, let's see, you also had... Okay, here, here's the other question. There, there's a few. So that means atheists can't go to a Christian church. So there is a difference between membership in a church and, um, and uh, attending a church. Um, so... It would be, I'm not sure if someone would want to necessarily go back to a church that they were disfellowshipped from. That's, um, uh, that, that's kind of a weird situation, but atheists are, are most certainly able to visit Christian churches. Now, should they be able to take communion? No, that, that's not what's, um, what should be happening. Uh, should they be granted membership? No, that, that's not what's happening. I mean, membership in churches is, is generally used to identify someone as a member of the church who you are saying very clearly that this, this person is a Christian um, and he is a member of this church, which is um, uh, actually, never mind. Forget about the, the witches. That's, that's all done. Um, 
also is Jesus, I guess, the chosen one. Um, he, yes, the the chosen one in the in the sense of he is the second person of the Trinity who came down, who was sent down, um, to die on the cross to live a perfect life and die. So you could use chosen one, but there is, uh, I think, there's more uh, nuance to that than just that. I believe in the second coming and that it will come while most of us are alive. Am I correct? Um, I don't know. Uh, no one, no one really knows about the the second coming exact timing. Most generations think that their generation is the one where people will will come down. Um, but there's there's no uh, real verification. Could be tomorrow. Could be three hundred years. Um, who knows? Um. Okay. I think that is all the questions for that. <laughs> um, so basically you have to be a Christian in order to become a member of said church. Yeah. And that's what a lot of like membership verification stuff is. Um, this will be the day when we have an event. Yeah. Larry Boy. So that's actually heresy, Larry Boy, because that, that day is going to be never. No events in here. When I find it, unmute my mic because I'm on my phone. It'd be easier to say. Yeah, you can can unmute to to ask. Basically, what I mean by uh, the is that um, is basically if you guys believe that it, that there is such thing as a second coming, and that uh, my family, I guess, believes that when the second coming happens, that everybody. Is that true, or is it uh, you, you, you cut out a bit for at at the end. Your family believes that the second coming already happened, and that's where you cut out. Well, uh, my family believes that when the second coming happened, that um everything will be wiped wiped out, except I get I guess for Christians, and then everybody else will be born anew. Am I wrong? Am I missing something? Uh, well. The eschatology, which is what this, uh, what that's about, is the second coming study of the end times. There's a lot of different opinions on it. Um, some people believe that there's going to be like seven years of tribulations, and then, or after like the rapture, then the world goes through having an antichrist, and then at the end, everyone like has a choice. But that's um, that's uh, dispensational premillennialism. But there's also uh, also believes that um, the second coming won't happen until a Christian kingdom is established. That's kind of um, the pre-mill view, and then the, there's there's a lot of different flavors and a lot of different views. Um, uh, it is not something that is inherently tied to salvation, if that's what you're asking about. It's, it's not something that I would say you should stress out over not having the right eschatolo eschatological view. Because it's it's not important. It's the Bible does not give a ton of uh, details or a ton of um, specific like you know what's going to happen tomorrow at like twelve twenty type of like details, and it's not something that is necessary to be a Christian, obviously, or else I wouldn't be telling you that there's multiple views on it. I would just tell you the view that. Would be required to be a Christian, but there, there's not a view that um, is 
required. Now, there some views have more strength than others, but um, you know that's uh, that's that's uh, just a uh, we'll save that for an eschatology topical study. Is there any other any other questions uh, particular to the text before I pray for us and and we wrap up? Or any comments or anything like that? Yeah. You gonna you gonna ask it, Brad Main? I got nothing. Okay. Um. Yeah. No problem. Goose. All right. Well, let me let me pray for us, and then we can be can be done. Lord, um, I thank you for this time that we were able to to study your word and just to see your glory. In this text, Lord, to see your glorious love, um, just how your love stands throughout the ages. It's not, it's not something that is temporal. It's not something that anything in creation can get in the way of. It is uh, eternal, and it is uh, standing tall. And there is nothing that can get in the way of your love for us, Lord. I just pray that we go throughout our weeks just remembering that. And just finding comfort in you, Lord. Find comfort in the reality of uh, your love. I just also pray that we just we'll just go throughout our weeks in remembrance of that, and that we'll just read our Bibles and pray, just glorify you in all that we do, Lord. I pray for all this in your wonderful holy name. Amen. <laughs>